Hi, I'm Tim Crosby, and welcome to episode 48 of Down the Track. Sean Whip, once again, uh, another big episode. Yeah, we've uh, we've had a pretty big week across, uh, I guess, a, a number of sports, Tim. So we've we've been able to stretch, you know, even out of our our usual uh, track and field sort of circle. But um, yeah. yeah, we've we've had plenty overseas, and um, yeah, some things to keep us interested. No, I think that's been a good thing during the COVID period too, is that uh, things coming from Europe have been entertaining us. Uh, the main focus of today's podcast will be cycling and um, hopefully our um, athletics aficionados don't mind that, but there is definitely a link here to athletics because Grace Brown was a, a former, you know, a, a state-level uh, athlete, you know, through middle distance and through to cross country and her story is a compelling story and it really the, the, the threads of this story will go through her training transition from athletics to cycling and then life on the road you know cycling for Mitchell and Scott and it, uh, it's, it's a really lovely chat and it was great to catch up with Grace and we'll also talk about uh, a few things on the other side of Grace's in- interview regarding uh, some other things happening in athletics overseas uh, Stuart McSwain's been out again conditions not in his favour and also Sean we're in the situation with Athletics Victoria where we are looking forward to some level of return to competition aren't we? Yeah, so I guess uh, a bunch of information has gone out in the last probably week or so to, to club uh, committees and presidents and, and coaches and officials. So if you if you haven't been able to cast an eye across that, um, a large majority of that information is available on the Athletics Victoria website or, or would be available through your best contact at the club um, that you're part of. Um, and yeah, it just tries to detail the, the series of steps that Athletics Victoria will look to take um, if regulations do ease. Um, and when, uh, you know, when those situations permit, uh, what sort of events uh, would be available on a, and on what sort of timeline so people can um, try and prepare. Yeah, and one of the key things with the the crew at AV, and they've look, the amount of work, I haven't been that much involved with this side of it, but the amount of work gone into this has been enormous. And the key is we're trying to be as transparent as possible. We know that not everyone is going to get exactly what they want out of this, but then again, I think the Victorian public uh, are pretty much used to that now, aren't they, Sean? Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think the you know obviously this year has put. Um, many, many industries and, and ways of life into very different um, norms. Um, and, and I think, yeah, we're just trying to make as much of an effort as possible to indicate that, um, you know, we as a sport and, and, and particularly the sport delivery team um, have put a, a, as many um, sort of steps or, or, or logical um, returning steps in place um, to be ready um, when we're allowed to basically progress. Well, fingers crossed that we get the you know, more green lights start flashing in our direction over coming days and weeks. We are nervously awaiting the next uh, announcement from state government on this Sunday. Let's see where that takes us. So, Sean, let's uh, now proceed into a quite a long interview with Grace Brown. Very big welcome to Grace Brown. Grace, welcome back to the athletics world. You've been out for a little while. Yeah, thanks, Tim. It's um, nice to be back and reconnect with the community here. Now, you were a, a talented athlete, you know, girl from Camperdown, came to Melbourne for, for boarding school, joined the Box Hill Athletic Club. PBs aren't too shabby, you know, 428-1500, for the 3K, 1734 for the 5K, regular at, you know, at Interclub, at Milers Club. Um, you know, you really were a feature. A couple of uh, national cross-countries represented Victoria. I think Albany was the last time you were in the state uniform, which also did the juniors a couple of times in cross-country, got a bronze, I think, in the under-23s? 
Yeah, that's right. I um, was quite prominent in the running scene all through my schooling and then into uni a little bit. I mean, I don't think I ever got to the level that I wanted to in running, but it was definitely great fun and um, lots of challenging, challenging good times there. Yeah, well, you were part of a good club at Box Hill. Who was your coach? Who was looking after you? Uh, Chris O'Connor at Box Hill was my coach. Um, we had a nice little mis- middle distance crew there. Now, around 2015, you started to sort of, I think that's the last time I've seen a result from you. 2016, yeah, there was not much happening in either sport. Then 2017, you start to sort of crop up. I think you were probably first time in Europe. 2018, you're then winning Oceania Championships and medalling in Australian Championships. And by 2019, you know, a national champion and really onto the European scene in cycling. What happened, Grace? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, if you just look at the results there, it's a bit hard to work out what happened. But basically in 2015, I was coming back from one injury, getting good with my running again. And then, yeah, about mid-year that year, I got my final stress fracture to like the head of my femur after um, I think it was the the road race around Lake Windery um, in Ballarat. Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Probably yeah, a windy day at Lake Windery yeah, as it normally is. I pulled yeah. up with a really sore hip, um, which turned out to be a stress fracture. And, yeah, I'd been through that process of um, stress fractures and, you know, six weeks of water running in the pool and um, I just couldn't face doing it again, basically. Also, though, you'd be looking around and quite a few of your peers were probably going through similar things. Is that the case with you, that you know, you're not the only one going through that? Yeah, I think especially amongst the women in in running, it's quite, I mean, it's almost normalised, um, I think, in athletics to be injured and go through that process. I think it's something that, that probably needs a little bit more attention to to work out how that can be avoided and, yeah, really get women through from that that young age where they show a lot of potential to actually being able to make, yeah, get some good results and, and reach their potential. I think, you know, Athletics Australia is certainly putting time into this and also through coaching, I think, it is becoming a focus and we're lucky in our previous um, podcast we had Jess Rothwell who's, you know, who you would know as a you know famous walker in, in you know, probably a similar age to you as well and you know people like Jess now working in the sport particularly working on diet and uh, the nutritional aspects for particularly young females. Yeah I've, um, I've definitely seen a lot more attention paid to it since I've left um, athletics and yeah it's really good to see also uh, one of my old competitors Georgie Buckley is um, doing a lot oh, of work yes. in that area as well which is awesome. Another gem. So cycling, you, you didn't sort of take it up wholeheartedly, did you? It was sort of just a little bit of a dabble and then, a little, then moving into club cycling? Yeah, so I, I um, well, I guess I, I bought a road bike and I bought a bike that I could race on. <laughs> so I guess, I guess I went in with some intention of being able to race. But at the start, I was I was just going out and seeing what I could do and um, having fun. I joined a bunch that rode 
along Beach Road um, and I just wanted to keep getting better at this new sport that I'd picked up. Um, it, it's quite different to running, a lot more adrenaline, I think, and also... What, what about the uptake of knowledge, though, Grace, what you had to learn about, particularly about the equipment? You know, when you first bought that bike, you know, you probably look back and have a bit of a chuckle about that now because, you know, what you're riding on now, I'd say, would be a bit of a totally different beast. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I bought a carbon bike, um, but I didn't really know much about anything else. Like, I didn't know the different standards of gearing the other components the wheels yeah basically I just thought oh a carbon bike it must be good (laughs) yeah but but that's just so you're getting that adrenaline rush out of it so that sort of gave you that impetus to to think more about and and definitely to start a little bit of racing you started with some local crits Yep, I started uh, entering some of the crits in Melbourne. So for your listeners uh, who might not know much about the different types of cycling races, uh, Criterium is a short circuit race usually around like a block and you'll do laps and laps and then it it often ends in a sprint. I started doing those crit races um, and, yeah, got got pretty competitive and I think towards the end of 2015 I entered the national championships road race for the next year yeah and that was going to be your first ever road race so straight to the nationals yeah why not yeah why not I was what was the experience (laughs) I was way out of my depth in that um yeah I think I think the biggest challenge for me, like I already had an engine from running. So, and you know, the the cardio was there. I could ride a bike fine and keep up. But the the biggest gap was acquiring the skills to ride in a bunch, especially like a bigger peloton, which I then encountered at the national championships. And if, if you don't have those skills to position in in the good part of the peloton up near the front um you're always on the back sort of chasing and trying to close gaps and you waste a lot of energy so i was i was quite out of my depth i didn't finish that race but it definitely yeah inspired me to to want to be at that level that i could see so many of the australian girls are at well, we've got such a great tradition, but one thing I do want to sort of talk about too is your first experience with your coach, Felicity Wardlaw, and how that sort of started. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, as I said, I, I entered the national championships. You could just go onto like the Cycling Australia website and click a button and enter in. It's not like athletics where you have to qualify. Yeah, you know, to qualify and, yeah. you know, and be a member of the association and all those sort of things, yeah. yeah. So I was like, oh, all right, I'll just I'll just enter and see how it goes. And then I sort of spoke with a few people and realised that, yeah, it, it was actually going to be a bit challenging and I started freaking out about a week before the event and tried to get in touch with some women that had raced it to get an idea of what the experience would be like. And one of the people I got put in touch with was Felicity Wardlaw, who was a previous Australian time trial champion and she gave me a whole heap of pointers about what to expect and how I might you know improve my chances on the day I guess and yeah after the race she got back in touch with me to see how I went I was like 
I explained that I was a bit out of my depth and and basically that I wanted to to train uh, more specifically for these types of races and did she know a coach and then she offered offered her services so she's still my coach today which is pretty cool. That's, that is pretty cool, isn't it? So, you know, she's been able to take you right the way from rookie beginner to, you know, potentially, you know, we won't blow your tires up too much, but now, you know, one of the leaders and, you know, what's been touted as one of the, the future of the sport of cycling in the world. So, um, you know, kudos to Felicity for that. And and what's the relationship like? And particularly, you know, you're in Europe for so long, and we'll talk about this a little bit later. Is she, does she do the tours or is she based in, in Victoria? Uh, no, she's based in Victoria. So one of the one of the good things about cycling and and coaching and cycling is that it's quite easy to do remotely. Um, we get a lot of data from our bikes. We have power meters on our um, crank sets. We wear heart rate monitors, and that information we upload to a platform online that our coach can analyze so she can set all my all my training sessions from Australia and I follow the prescription and then yeah upload my data and she can she can see what I've done which is really cool and also we just we just keep in touch and chat quite regularly so it it's an easy relationship and is that relationship also morphing and growing though is there sort of a very much a mentor type relationship as you get a little bit more independent yeah I think probably at the start there was more of uh, a mentor relationship now we're really quite close friends and she I think we understand each other really well she knows what I need and what I don't need so in a way, we don't actually need to talk that often, not as much as we did in the start anyway. Yeah, I think, I think we're a really good unit. It's, it's the old thing, Grace. If, it's, uh, if it ain't broke, then don't try and fix it. And, you know, if you've got that relationship and you always know that she's there for you to support, then, you know, why would you even think about changing? One, one thing, though, how does she work in with, say, the team aspect? Because it, you're very much in a team environment now. Does, is she consulted or does she need to be, uh, you know, advising team tactics or she just stays out of that and just worries about your own fitness or building you up in that sort of off-season? Uh, yeah, so she's... I mean, she has some communication with our sports directors on the team, just more from a high-level sort of perspective of what they're expecting from me and what my race schedule is going to be for the year. Um, But she doesn't have any involvement in team tactics. All all the riders, yeah, all the riders on the team have um, individual coaches I mean, some of the girls have coaches that are um, employed by the team, but mainly we have our own personal coaches. And so, yeah, the role as a coach is to focus on their individual athlete and make make that athlete the best they can be. Um, And then it's sort of up to us to demonstrate that, you know, we have the ability to, to be a leader in a race or yeah, sometimes you need to you need to negotiate that if, if there's more than one of us that are wanting to target a certain race. 
Yeah, or even a certain stage. And we do see that playing out when, you know, us amateurs are watching and uh, seeing that, you know, the, the commentators going on, well, which one of this team is actually going to go for this stage because there's two that could probably take it. Yeah. So yeah. That, that plays into it. it. It's a very different dynamic to athletics, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a little bit more complicated. <laughs> a lot more complicated, I'd say. Uh, look, 2020 has obviously been, a, you know, a year like no other uh, for, for all of us. But um, do you want to, you know, Talk about the the general life of a pro cyclist, a pro female cyclist on a on a team in Europe. You know, like discounting the fact that this year so many have been you know changed and postponed, and you're in a very condensed little series at the moment, which you know they've had to reduce distances and things like that to cope with that. But you know, say using year 2019 as as an example, what does the year look like for Grace Brown? Yeah, so um, in a typical year, I usually would come to Europe around February, late February. We've got some races in Australia that, that a lot of people are familiar with, uh, the Tour Down Under in Adelaide, the Cadell Evans Road Race in Victoria and also the National Champs are usually early in the year. So we, we race, race those at the start of the year and then um, make our way over to Europe to begin the European season. Um, so that Australian segment, are you in tip-top shape from that? Are you carrying shape through from the previous season or is it a build-up towards going to Europe? No, usually uh, it's it's still in our building phase. So it's pretty hard for a lot of, yeah, a lot of the pro athletes uh, with, with the nationals particularly being our very first race of the season. Generally, we're not in our best form. So that can be really hard. And, and the rest of the the people that line up in Australia always expect us to be at a really high level. So, yeah, it's it's a tough race. And obviously, yeah, we want to win the, the national championship. So well, hard. is there much riding on the nationals? Are they often used as selection for, you know, if there's a, you know, a world champs, uh, Olympics, comp games, it's probably the, the next level down. But uh, do they, are they looking at those results? Because you have won a national champs, I think, in the individual time trial. So does that mean that you're automatically selected or are they then going to look at what else happens in Europe? Uh, in the past, it was a selection criteria, but now uh, it's not at all. Yeah, I, uh, basically all races you do ca- can come into consideration. It's very discretionary uh, how they choose teams for championship events. Yeah, that word discretion, Grace, it always gets people's eyebrows raising them <laughs> because... <laughs> Yeah, you know, we, we've suffered through that in our sport before, and it's often when you, you know, as we refer to the US system of you know first three of the trials go, then um, you know there's no arguing. But uh, yeah, whenever discretion comes in, it can get uh, quite fraught from, with danger, can't it? Yeah, but but it makes sense in cycling because it it's not such a black and white sport. You need to show more consistency in top results rather than just one event because so much can go wrong and also yeah with the national chance like it's in the scheme of things in our calendar it is not um it's not got the same prestige as winning a race in europe so yeah, I can imagine and quite often dude starting that season in australia we're looking at the tour down under in south australia and you can get some brutal conditions some strong winds some real extreme heat it uh it's a nice little introduction to the racing year isn't it <laughs> yeah it can be really tough in adelaide uh often we get temperatures over 40 degrees there but yeah as as australians we 
secretly like that just because a lot of the Euros for, that come over to race aren't quite as well adapted, um, so we can take advantage of that. But, but it's still not very fun in that, that sort of heat. <laughs> What are you finding, you know, there's no doubt that cycling as a um, public interest sport is really, you know, hitting new heights. And are you seeing that, you know, you've been to Adelaide now a few times for Tour Down Under, are you seeing that year on year it's, it's just really picking up? Yeah, the the Tour Down Under in Australia is a really fun event that basically anyone that loves cycling in Australia sort of does this pilgrimage to Adelaide for that week. And it, it's really cool just to have that atmosphere there. And I think also uh, it's it's increasing interest in what we then do when we come over to Europe. There's, I, I've particularly noticed that a lot more people are following what we're doing. And for the women's sport as well, the last couple of years, we've been getting a lot more TV coverage, which is awesome for our sport and for our spectators back at home. Well, it's building profile, isn't it, Grace? I think that's really important for you. Let's now lead on to talking all about team stuff. You're with uh, the Australian team, which is great, isn't it? Mitchell and Scott, you know, what a, you know, they've had a few name changes and things like that, but the Mitchell and Hart's been there for a while. Did, you know, what's it like? You know, you've been in a couple of teams leading up to that, but being selected for Mitchell and Scott, what was the process actually? Do you have an agent or do you just get tapped on the shoulder? How does that process work? Um. I don't have an agent. Um, there's, yeah, there's not that many women that have have agents in cycling. Um, I think it's becoming a little bit bigger now, but really the the main negotiations we do is contracts, and then all the sponsors come with the team, so we don't have to go out and find individual sponsors, which is which is nice for us, I guess. That takes a lot of pressure off. Too, yeah. And, and- Obviously, them getting some of the best equipment because you know you're on the Scott bikes and it's you know you, I can imagine the machinery you're now dealing with is um, you know it's a bit be eye popping to the amateurs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the the stuff that we ride is isn't on the cheap end of things that's for sure. So um, you wouldn't want to be funding much of this on your own. So it makes it a lot easier for us being in that team of environment where they where we get paid a salary and. And all the sponsors are dealt with at the team level. But yeah, back to your question. Well, did they did they approach you, or did you approach them? Uh, I'm trying. I think I initially contacted them almost a year before I signed with the team. So early early 2018, I started talking with the team. Um, about the potential for yeah a contract in 2019 and basically we just kept in touch uh, for that year and yeah they they were quite familiar with my strengths as a rider then because the, the pool of like athletes at, at that level looking for contracts in Australia is is not huge so yeah this team is familiar with any up-and-coming Australian cyclist really and that always interested. Um, yeah. Your role, would it, early on, would that have been defined as a bit of an all-rounder? So you're not there to be the big star, you're not there to take stage victories, but you're there in support. But you had some very good attributes in that you're already known as a good time trialer and also you were good on the hills. Yeah, so I, I, when I joined the team, I guess they, yeah, there wasn't heaps of pressure on me to be anything in particular. They 
they knew that I was, yeah, as you say, like quite an all-rounder, like I'm, I'm strong on flat and hilly courses and I was able to slot into the team pretty easy and be useful um, right from the start. I, I had expected that there would be a bit of a process of um, sort of earning your stripes, <laughs> um, as you say, on the team. But, yeah, even in my first weeks there, so my first um, tour down under, I got the opportunity to go for a stage win on the Sterling stage, which was stage three uh, in 2019. And, yeah, I won, I won that stage, which was really cool and, and totally unexpected, actually. Like, I had just didn't expect that the team would give me a chance um, like that so early. So you get the nod from the sport to direct, director, this is the one that you'll, you know, the team will be working for you. Uh, we have faith in you and go for it. And it must have been a nice feeling, first, you know, victory or major victory on home soil. Yeah, uh, like I, I was beside myself <laughs> really with excitement um, being able to pull that off. Yeah, it's it's funny those moments where you do something unexpected but it just feels sort of easy in retrospect um yeah often the wins are the easy ones Grace. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did that tell you though that the, the team then had faith in you did that make you stand a few inches taller knowing that yeah look this this team yeah they've got my back here and they think I can do it yeah I felt really um supported and trusted by the team right from the start and I knew that they were yeah they were going to put energy into my development which which was really comforting yeah look let's go through some of the lineup though that you currently got the Australians you've got Gracie Elvin who's a multi multiple Australian road champion Lucy Kennedy you know tour down under Harold Sun tour champion Sarah Roy the sprinter you know just a you know sensational sprinter when she gets those leagues going Amanda Spratt say no more climber tour day and under winner multi-Australian road race champion uh Giro did it to tell you you know she's won the mountain classifications yeah she is just an out and out Australian star then internationally you've got Georgia Williams from New Zealand who's uh, you know won multiple New Zealand championships Commonwealth Games uh, silver medal Olympic representative and then Annemiek Van Vluten who is you know, double world champion, then road race and also individual time trial. What a bad team, is it, Grace? <laughs> no, it's not shabby. Um, yeah, we've we've got a really strong team and, yeah, some amazing leaders, particularly um, with Amanda Spratt and Annemiek Van Vloot. And um, I think they've elevated the team a lot in the last couple of years and it's been, yeah, pretty pretty special to ride with them actually. How have you found coming from an individual sport to a team sport? Was that hard to adapt to or is it it's just an, in the nature of Grace Brown that this is what you enjoy? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I don't think I found it too hard to adapt to. Like it took me a little while to understand the dynamics of how the team racing works. Like it's not super obvious from the outside looking in, but yeah, I think I think I grew to it pretty quickly. I really love being in a domestic role and and helping leaders win. Yeah, that's that's an exciting thing, and sometimes it's it's almost more rewarding than like getting a result yourself. Yeah, is that part of the magic of this sport though? That this whole dynamic, as you call it, around a team, and that you know, for us who are sitting you know the other side of the screen watching it or out there watching it on the day. 
you, you we're not privy to the team tactics and we're waiting to see what happens and who's doing what roles on the day. I, I actually find it really fascinating. Did you know you had a learning curve there, but when you fully understand that, is do you think that's something that can make cycling a little bit special? Yeah, I think it makes cycling a super interesting sport. It's um it's never straightforward, and as you say, the spectators are always like the story is unfolding within a race. As you're watching, you sort of realize what what each person's role is and and how their effort is making making the picture of the race. And yeah, I think I think that that makes it a really really cool sport. Now, there's some major news in the team, though, with um, Van Vluten moving to Movistar, the Spanish mob, next year. You know, I won't sort of preface, you know, what your, you know, where you go in the team or what happens next year in, in the 2021 season, but you'd have to all, as a amateur observer, I'd have to be thinking, gee, this opens the door a little bit for Grace Brown. <laughs> yeah, I've had a lot of people um, make that comment in the last couple of weeks. Well, particularly in the last couple of weeks, Grace, I think because, you know, we will go into your race record soon, but the dynamic there has changed, using that word once again, and um, you would have to be looking at, at, at probably a more elevated role within Mitchell and Scott. Yeah, uh, definitely. I'm, I'm going to be expected to to step up a lot, I think, next year when when we don't have Anamique on the team. She yeah, for the, the past couple of years she's been our number one rider on the team and basically every race that she is on the roster for we're riding for her because she's so dominant and she's always always in with a chance to win um, pretty much on any course. So without her in the mix, yeah, it really changes how our team is going to race and who we'll be racing for. And yeah, we've we've got a lot of a lot of girls on the team that are very strong and that can get results in her absence. And it's just and there might even be signings too over the off season as well. Potentially, you just you know that that's something that's a little bit out of your control. Yeah, we've we've got some new girls coming onto the team as well. Uh, we yeah we know two new riders that are coming for next year so far, and I think there should be some more as well. But yeah, that's still yet to be <laughs> announced. So, but even so, yeah, next year we'll we'll see some different racing from our team. Now, I have read that Mitchell and Scott are very good at that whole integration, though, with the men and the women's squad. Yeah, the men are you know doing their bits and all. Yeah, we won't talk too much about them. There's been a bit of COVID rampaging through the men's squad at the moment, but just in general talking about the way this team works, that uh, the support for the female squad is is pretty renowned, isn't it, amongst, amongst uh, Mitchell and Scott? Yeah, I mean, we try, um, try to share a lot of the resources between the teams, especially when we're doing the same races. So... Uh, for example, we've just been racing in Belgium and both the men and the women stay at the same hotel and we um, eat meals together and, yeah, just interact and it's, it's quite nice being like that. A lot of the rest of the year were quite different race schedules so there's often like a chunk where we don't see much of them but yeah. And then you've got the independent resources that are specific to the female squad and the male squad have got theirs, I assume. Yeah. Uh, so base for, yeah, base for Mitchell and Scott in Europe, is that Italy is the base? Yep, yeah, the team's based in Italy. We have 
what we call a service course here, which is where all the equipment and offices and everything is and all the staff are based out of here as well, mainly. What's your Italian like? <laughs> uh, Improving? <laughs> it's all right. I don't, I don't actually get as much opportunity to practice it as you would expect just because we're traveling all the time but yeah well, for the I, moment you're spending a lot of time in belgium places yeah like that, aren't you? yeah so and, and i've been English in italy so <laughs> even though my base is in italy i've i think i've been at my apartment here a total of maybe 10 nights for the year which has been crazy <laughs> <laughs> just like another hotel room grace yeah <laughs> um let's have a look at 2020 because you know as i intimated before it, it's it it potentially has been the breakout year for you you've served your apprenticeship but in saying that listening to some of the experts they're saying that it hasn't been a terribly long apprenticeship either that um you've, you've burst through this year i think surprisingly to a lot of people Let's talk world champs first. So fifth in the individual time trial there. Were you expecting that going in? Um, to be honest, I was, yeah, I was hoping for a top 10 result um, in the time trial. Uh, and, yeah, you always sort of have this little glimmer of uh, hope that maybe you can do better than that. Um, and And even, you know, in sports psychology you know you have to have to visualize that you can win something so yeah you race you still race to win even if your realistic dream is to be top 10 (laughs) Um, you're only 30 seconds off the podium which you know over 31 kilometers isn't isn't a huge amount so it's showing i think that was an indication that you know you're definitely world class and you're you're knocking on the door of of podiums so you would have come away from world champs feeling pretty yeah well there's always though that were you disappointed that you didn't get the podium knowing you weren't too too far away yeah, I I was a little bit disappointed not to get the podium, especially so because I was uh, off the start ramp a little earlier than um, most of the top girls. I was in the hot seat for I think twenty minutes, um, right? And that you know that really gets your hopes up that you're gonna. Yeah. Stay. Well, I explain to the listeners that the ITT, the individual time trials, where everyone takes off independently they just race the course by themselves and uh usually it's seeded so that the fastest seed will go last and they know what everyone else has done and they know the time checks that they've sort of got to be hitting so so as you say you were out a little bit earlier and help you were in the hot seat as you say the the fastest time out there and then everyone's chasing you and there's nothing you can do about it and we saw that um you know so brilliantly at the end of the the men's tour de france this year didn't we yeah um yeah it's it can be pretty epic i mean it's it's not always the most uh exciting event to watch just because you know you're watching people race individually along the same course but um when there's lots of time checks and and people are really close it can be exciting and those in the pointy end of the race for sure well, I, I sort of said to uh, someone, oh, I'm not sure if I'll stay up for the tour tonight, but when, it, you know, that was the final night because I, I was the same. I just thought these ITTs weren't that great, but there was just so much riding on it. And, and yet again, it, it's all about the presentation, Grace, and I found that because the, the commentators were so good at telling a story that you can really get a lot out of an ITT and uh, if, if it's presented well. 
and they can be so exciting with intermediate time checks and also with Tour de France, obviously, there was also the bike changes on the ITT, which was extremely exciting. <laughs> so you know, there's always a story to tell, isn't there? And, um, you know, and it's obviously a skill that you have got and, you know, we'll talk more, you know, about some of your other tactics and your strengths, but being a good time trialer isn't a bad thing to have in your back pocket, is it? No, it's pretty handy to know that you can uh, push out, like, some really solid um, power for an extended period of time. Yeah, especially, you know, you can use that in road racing as well. And, I mean, there's, there's other aspects as well to time trialling. It, it's not just the power, but you also have to work a lot on your aerodynamics on the bike. So we have we have a special bike in, in the individual time trial that allows us to sit in the most aerodynamic position. And then on top of that, there's, just the the confidence in cornering at speed and trying to make up all seconds across the course as possible. And things like the helmet are different. Often the suit you wear are different. Yep. The, you know, what you might have over the shoes are different because it's all about that streamlining. It really is a, it's quite a, a technical event. Let's skip forward. Liege, Bastion, and Liege. You must have some pretty good memories of that one. <laughs> yeah, this is another one of those those races that you sort of look back on and you can't quite believe that you did it and it felt reasonably yeah it didn't feel too hard at the time <laughs> it's a high profile race now this one is a one day classic it's yeah. not the multi event nor multi stage like we see in the tour de france or the you know the vuelta and things like that so it's a one day it was about 135k i think grace yeah that's right, right. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a reasonable amount of distance. I know the distance has been changed a little bit this year because of that condensed um, season. So often these ones might be a little bit longer, but that was 135. Just tell us the story there because you, you, you didn't win. You came second, but the one who beat you is, you know, is a pretty awesome rider, and that's uh, Lizzie Diamond from um, the UK. So did you – what were your expectations going into Lee's Best on Liege and did you meet them, exceed them, or – not a, not achieve what you thought. Yeah, so the the funny thing was that I wasn't wasn't actually rostered to do this race at all, nor the no. nor the race before it, which was um, Flesh Wallone. Uh, so they're both in the same region and just a couple of days apart. And because our two leaders, Anamik. Van Vluten and Amanda Spratt had crashed in the later stages of the women's Giro. Uh, they had to withdraw from these races and that left us with quite an open open plan for Flesh Wallone and I surprised myself by riding quite well there. I came 12th and then Liège Basson Liège was only a few days later and... Oh, Animate came back in for that race, actually, sorry. But because I'd done well in the race previous, our sports director said that I would be another protected rider alongside Animate uh, for that race, uh, which was, yeah, which was exciting for me because um, probably, yeah, the, the first time for a race of that level that I'd, I've been in that role in the team, so... Did that surprise you, Grace, when you got that tap on the shoulder that you were one of the protected riders, or were you sort of half expecting it with the um, you know, uh, the, the way the lineup was changing? 
Yeah, I, coming into the race, I expected it, but like a week previous to that, I wouldn't have thought that at all. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's amazing how thick, quickly things can change. Yeah, so how the race panned out was that we actually, as a team, missed the major break of the day. So there was a group of nine riders that um, went up the road after quite hard hard and technical section. They, they got off the front and we missed that. Um, so we had Lucy Kennedy riding the front of our chase group trying to close the gap to them, but it didn't come down the time, the time between us and, and the breakaway. So uh, my sports director said that I should try and bridge across to the girls up the road, which when he said that, I was like, oh, gosh, this is going to be a hard <laughs> ask. <laughs> but What were the conditions like, Grace? Was it a reasonable day or were there crosswinds? No, no, it was pouring rain for the first half of the race. It was horrible um, and really cold, but yeah, I and then you get told that you've got to work pretty hard here to try and bridge that gap. Yeah, so I had to close bridge across a minute gap, which is quite significant, really. But yeah, somehow, somehow I did it, <laughs> and I got across to the group ahead, um, and was able to recover once I got there. I just sat on the back and. So they were all rolling turns and um, keeping the pace up and I was just sitting at the back trying to recover as much as possible. And then so we came into there's two steep short climbs in the closing 30 kilometres of the race and Lizzie Dynan, who won the race, attacked on the first of those and got a gap on the group um, that I was in. And the group didn't really work very well to try and chase her back. So she she ended up getting uh, over a minute ahead of us. Yeah, per, I think ev- every one of us just thought, oh, that's, you know, that's the winner, gone, she's. Yeah, and, and you'd already bridged a minute to get back onto that pack. Yeah. So it's yeah. as if you had a lot of juice sitting there ready to go. I think, oh, God, I've got to do it again. Yeah. But what happened after that? Because it, it came down, nearly came down to the wire. Yes. So on the final climb, I... I attacked and really in my head I just thought that I was you know racing for for second now um and I wanted to get up the road ahead of the other girls I didn't know if if my attack would be strong enough to do that or not but I just went for it anyway um and by the top of the climb I had gained 30 seconds on the rest of the girls and it was only 30 seconds to Lizzie up the road and yeah after that it was sort of rolling and then downhill to the finish which was quite hard to continue to take time on but I managed to get it within nine seconds by the finish line which was quite painful but also I was yeah I was really happy it's a big race in the cycling world and it was beyond my expectations to be on the podium at a race like that. Do you think, Grace, that was the one where you were saying to the cycling world, I've arrived? <laughs> I, yeah, I think, I think a lot of people sat up and noticed, that's for sure. I, I don't think anyone expected me to be able to get that result before that day. So, yeah, it was, it was exciting, that's for sure. 
Well, in the athletics Victoria world, it was noticed. Um, <laughs> we, we, yeah, we, we do watch what's happening in other sports. And, and on the, the 7th of October, I started to contact you about trying to get you on the podcast and you didn't even tell me that you were racing that day. So we were, we were you know, communicating by messenger and uh, suddenly I wake up the next morning and you've raced again. And this was the Brabant's Peel race yet again in Belgium. It was uh, 100, about 120 odd K. And, yeah, it was a pretty damn good result for Grace Brown. What happened, Grace? Um, yeah, so this this race isn't quite as high profile as the Liège Bass on Liège, but, it, yeah, it's still, it was still a really good race. And most of the same girls um, lined up. And, yeah, it's a, a typical sort of Belgian classic-style race with lots of punchy little climbs and some cobble sections, quite technical. And, yeah, I think I lined up just feeling super confident after my result um, at Liège and I was just in, in this zone that I don't think I've ever been in like that before. And, yeah, in the, in the final, I think, 18, 18Ks from the finish, there were, you know, the racing was on and there were girls attacking and I just chose a moment to to attack when there was a little bit of confusion in the bunch and I got a gap and, um, yeah, was able to maintain it all the way to the finish line with 18Ks to go. So it was pretty, yeah, pretty tough effort, but, yeah, exciting. Yeah, it, it's totally exciting, Grace, and I would recommend to anyone, if you haven't seen, the footage is up there, you can get it on YouTube. It's called the Brabant's Peel, so B-A, sorry, B-R-A-B-A-N-T-S-E-P-I-J-L. And the last 30 to 40 minutes is captivating. It is awesome because you've uh, made the move at, a, at a, as you say, a critical time because there was confusion. You had a leader out front and then she made a bit of an oops when she went around a bend and went too far into the gutter and you just went straight up through the middle of those cobbles and went for it. And then what some of the experts, I'm not saying I'm an expert in cycling whatsoever, but what from what I've been researching, people are saying that you've really got this lovely skill and what are they calling it? It's, it's the long attack that um, you're not afraid to go a fair way out from home and then just drive and drive and drive. And what do you attribute that to, Grace? Where did you get the long attack from? Or, you know, is that something you don't want to be known for because you don't want to be sort of pegged as, oh, this is the way I'm always going to do it? Um, oh, I would I would like to, to win in other ways as well. Um, yeah, I don't think any rider wants to be, yeah, completely predictable in, in how they win races, but it's definitely a strength of mine and I – I think actually it comes from being a runner and just like training that engine from a really young age to hold consistently high, uncomfortable effort for That's a long a good time. Point, actually. I haven't thought about that, but that background does pay off, doesn't it? That that when we are running endurance races, particularly as you're going beyond middle distance and up, um, that yes, it, you, you, you know, it's one of the ironies of our sport, it's very rare that you enjoy what you're doing out there. It's only <laughs> afterwards that you enjoy it. And you yeah. have to know what it feels like to hurt for an extended period. Yeah, and, and you learn, I think one great thing that you learn um, as a runner is monitoring your effort you you can sit in that zone just under just under your red zone that you know that you can maintain 
For Bats Peel, there was another dynamic going on. When you hit the lead, you, know, you had no support out there. It was you and then a gap of about 25, 30 seconds. But you, then you had two Sunweb uh, riders sort of coming at you and really trying to make that move. And, you know, they weren't – there were no Dills either. You had, you know, Mackay and Lippett, um, two very well accomplished. You know, and they had each other to work with. I think Lippett went first, then uh, let Mackay come and get her, and then they worked together to try and bridge that gap. In the end, though, I think you extended the lead, Grace. That, that must be, yeah, when you were hearing that coming through, when, when you first knew that there was two coming at you, was there any panic or was it, oh, no, I think I've got this? As you said, you're controlling it, you knew how you felt or was that, oh, shit, there's two of them coming? Uh, yeah, there was definitely um, a little bit of uh, crap. I've got it's two against one here. Um, I knew that their team like even before they were on their own together, the whole team was chasing me in the peloton. And yeah, that that can be quite scary when you're out there on your own, knowing that it's a game of numbers, really. There was a really hard, short, cobbled climb. I don't know. It's great vision, Grace. So <laughs> this is why I say people should look at this video because this is a gnarly little sh- sharp hill with rough yeah. cobbles. We're not yeah. talking these even... Cobbles, this is rough stuff. It was, <laughs> it was horrible. It, it, but, yeah, I went up that and I'm like, if I get to the top of this, I can get to the end. Like, that that was my sort of thing that if, if I'm over this, it's pretty – like, I needed to obviously keep going really hard after that, but I knew that it would be much more manageable um, if I survived over there still with a gap. Um, and then it was into a headwind, which is pleasant, a, but it it's not pleasant, you, but it suits me. And like, I know that I can often do better than others in that. In, into so with about 8K to go, I think they, yeah. they weren't really gaining anymore. And you must have sort of known by then you had your first European victory under your belt. Yeah, yeah, it was... Uh, so it was a long victory, victory little lap in, wasn't it? I think you could <laughs> sense that you knew you had that. And, you know, obviously the last straight is where you do the celebrations, but I think you were probably feeling pretty chuffed leading in. Yeah, I did have my sports director on the radio, like, yelling at me, like, all the way to the line pretty much not to not to let up because, yeah, you can you can lose 30 seconds pretty quickly if you... Um, if you yeah, stop you might dying. have been telling you a few porky pies about yeah. what the break was. They're getting you, they're coming, they're coming. So yeah. he didn't want me to uh yeah, to to take it too early. <laughs> I want to get some context now too, Grace, on what it's like to be a professional cyclist because you you did the world champs individual time trial on the twenty fourth of September. You then did the world champs road race on the twenty sixth of September, you then did La Fleche Valone in Belgium in the, on the 30th of September. The 4th of October, you still in, well, the rest of the races were all Belgium, but then you had Liege Baston Liege on the 4th. On the 7th, you had Brabantse Pill, uh, where you had the win. And then only four days later, you're racing again, again in Gent, uh, excuse my, my, um, yeah, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> so it's consistent. Is that, is this the norm or is this a COVID season where you're seeing such a compressed um, amount of racing? Uh, yeah. I mean, COVID has um, made it more intense than usual, but say like a lot of the races that we're doing now are usually in quick succession um, in around March, April. Yeah, they're so, lead-in races to the major tours, aren't they? Generally? Yeah, so the, the, the 
the classics they're called the spring classics which are yeah the the belgian races basically and often yeah we'll be racing on the weekends and midweek and it depends depends on the some some riders might get a schedule where they uh get a bit more break between races but i mean for me i seem to end up doing all the races let's talk the future now too for you gross because um the Olympics has to be on the radar, time trial, but it's not such a simple dynamic, is it? Just because you came fifth in the world champs, you know, you're the, lead, the only Australian uh, who went in the individual time trial. Fifth, great result and not far off podium. doesn't necessarily guarantee Olympic spot, does it? No, unfortunately. Um, I think, yeah, the only thing that would guarantee me a spot would be winning the world championship time trial. But, um, yeah, there's there's still a chance that I might not be selected for the time trial um, at the Olympics. But what about road race? Would you be in consideration for that? Yeah, I'd I'd still be in consideration for the road race as well. And yeah, I think well, I've in got... a way you're lucky you've got you've got two strings to your bow here. <laughs> in the time, you know, getting back to the time trial, what's the depth in Australia like, and you know how do you rate yourself? Uh, for the time trial, there's not a, a huge amount of depth in Australia just because there's not as much yeah there's not as many opportunities to race time trials and it it takes a lot more um investment of time and and energy to yeah dial in all the other aspects that you need to to focus on for a time trial like it's quite quite a bit more specific than road racing and a lot of girls find it, it hard to juggle that to train for the time trial as well. So, yeah, there's not there's not too many other girls that would be, yeah, lining up or in consideration also, for the time trial. You know, similar to in athletics when we have world champs in Australia, there's a um, you know, heightened level of interest. Now, 2022, we've got the world champs in the Wollongong area, is that correct? Yeah. So that would have to be something that's on uh, – well and truly on the radar for you. <laughs> yeah, it'll be um, it'll be pretty cool to have the world championships in Australia because yeah, usually we're so so removed from Australia and the Australians in the peloton are sort of the a bit different to everyone else over here in a way. Um, and getting the rest of the peloton to Australia so that they can be in our environment for once is quite special. Yeah, listen to them complain about travel and uh, all the things that we get so used to. Uh, <laughs> yep. But having a crazy Australian crowd, and you know, as we know, Australia always gets great crowds for any type of championship like this. That would have to be something you'd have to be salivating over, Grace. You'd just be looking forward to having that, you know, crazy Australian lycra-clad contingent there. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think any fans can be more crazy than my own family. But um, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure there'll be a lot of enthusiasm out there. It'll be awesome. All right, moving back to the the classics. Uh, do you see yourself say on the multi dayers with the role that Mitchell and Scott, you know, in that you will be staying there, well, at least for next year. I hope you contracted. But uh, are you seeing yourself now more as a general classification type rider or a stage winner? Now, for the listeners who don't understand, the general classification is where you win it over those multi stages, and the stage winners is going all out for one day to get a victory on the day where where do you see yourself moving or is that 
going to depend on what the team requires of you? I think it more depends on the the type of course. So, for instance, one of our biggest stage races in on the women's calendar is the women's Giro, and that tends to be quite a mountainous course over the days. So to be a GC contender in that race, you really have to be one of the top climbers. Uh, so, yeah, that that's not really me. Like I... I'm a good climber on short, punchy climbs, but the long climbs um, are not my strength. So, you see both points. You've been racking up a few in those climbs. Um, <laughs> it's got a, a strong point scorer for you, but uh, obviously, yeah, not necessarily those, as you're saying, those really long days in the hills and the Alps and places like that. Yeah. So, I can, I'm quite good if like the, the accumulation of climbing meters is high like that's fine but if it 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 really depends on yeah the length and the steepness of a climb whether I'm competitive on it that's yeah (laughs) but I think that's something that I can also improve on yeah just I, I just need to train train on those types of climbs a bit more and focus on on some of the other aspects that makes you a good climber, but that but, training though, growth that that would have to be European based training, would it, to get those similar sort of climbs? Because in Australia, do we cut it for that stuff, or you really have to be in the more mountainous areas? Um, oh, you no, there is terrain in Australia that that works for that. Like if you go up to the Victorian Alps around yeah Falls Creek, Mount Hotham, you've got really long climbs there that you can practice on. But the, what we don't have in Australia in terms of training environment um, is that high altitude, which can be really beneficial. If you can do a three-week block training at altitude, that, that helps a lot with racing form. Yeah, it's above that 23, 2400 metres generally, yeah, which is usually where we're capping out or not quite getting there. Yeah, yeah. So uh, usually we would stay at maybe 2,000 metres. And then, yeah, you can you can go down to train more intensity or just do, yeah, lower intensity, higher up as well. What else? Where else do you see the career going, Grace, if it's not too broad a question? <laughs> um, yeah, I haven't, I haven't really sat down to specifically map, yeah, the details of that out, I don't think. I, the, my career so far has, I always seem to, be jumping beyond my expectations um, before I have time to plan for it. So, <laughs> yeah, I think I just... I'm sure after the, the 2016 uh, Australian Championships road race, you wouldn't have been thinking that uh, only four years later we'd be talking like this? No, definitely not. Uh, and there's, there's always points in my development that I've just looked at where I am and where I want to be and been like, it's so hard like I'm never going to be as good as those other girls but really in the end it's just consistently working away at trying to yeah I'm just always focused on being a better better version of myself and working on the things that are within my control and eventually they accumulate and and you get to the level that you thought wasn't possible um initially so yeah, I think it's a little bit synonymous with your athletic career, though, Grace. You were never, you never, ha- never had a big breakout. It was always just consistent uh, under Chris's guidance, consistency, racing quite a lot. You, you were very regular out there. 
Uh, but yeah, never you know, like often we'll see someone just in one season go from you know just good level club level to being in you know, national level. But uh, for you, it was just steady, 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 and then obviously the sport got too much for you. But in the cycling, you've just applied that once again. But this sport has then opened more doors to you, and then this progression due to lack of injury because you've obviously had consistency over the last four years, and that's allowed you to to take it where it is now. Yeah, I mean in. In cycling, I have had injuries. <laughs> there's there's the the crashing, unfortunately, that um, sometimes puts you out of the sport for a little bit. But it's yeah, because it's a, a low impact sport, you can you can get back to training much quicker than you can as a runner. Which yeah, which I've found a lot more easy to deal with, even though you might at first seem like you've got a worse injury with broken bones or plenty of road rash and the likes but um now as 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 an amateur cyclist who's renowned for going over the handlebars a few times what's the worst (laughs) injury you've had the worst injury i've had uh so worst crash yeah last year around late august at the tour of norway i there was a crash on a gravel section in a race Uh, i think a girl hit a pothole and like lost control of her handlebars and I got flung into a ditch on the side of the road and I sliced my arm open. I've got this nasty scar on my forearm now that's probably about 20 centimetres long Um, and I also got a chain ring to my chest which broke multiple ribs eight ribs I think and punctured my lung so I I was sort of lying in this ditch unable to breathe I thought I was dying um but oh Christ come back the stresses don't sound that bad do they (laughs) (laughs) um yeah then I was like oh stress fractures might be all right um yeah but but thankfully I didn't die I'm here to tell the tale Um, well and you've kicked on pretty well too yeah but that yeah that was that was a pretty traumatic one. Oh, yeah, no, it's it's an occupational hazard, isn't it? And those crashes, when they happen, they can be spectacular. Uh, spectac- it's a bit like watching car racing. You know, often people are watching the bike racing for a good stack. And um, yeah, anyway, I just uh, I want to now finish off to just you know we had Bridie O'Donnell on a few months ago, and it was an awesome. I'm still getting over it. I'm still um, you know in awe of uh, how she spoke and how well she spoke. Uh, and, you know, one of the issues for her was, you know, um, well, politics in cycling. And I just want to read something to you and we'll sort of chat about it. And this is a quote I've just got recently. Most female pro cyclists have second or third jobs and many live on their credit cards to race. They don't get paid because they're not on TV. And they're not on TV because there's not enough funding. There's not enough funding because the sport elicits so little attention. It's a vicious cycle. Now, look, we have talked about you getting some coverage of late, but in general, it is pretty well known that uh, women's cycling is probably not treated that well by the UCI, which is the international body, similar to world athletics for for our sport. How are you coping with that? You're on contract. You're obviously making a living, but but you look over the fence at what's happening in the men's cycling and and often think, "Mm, gee, that would be a better position to be in. Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, Bridie 
she she was racing in Europe many years before me and and things have improved a lot since then like most most of the women in the pro peloton now are paid and and in fact they've um, introduced a minimum salary um, starting this year which gets increased next year um, which actually makes you know girls can can earn more than just you know enough to support living um, and shouldn't need to have a second job so it, it's gotten a lot better it's improving yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it needs to but there's also other issues at play here too when we well know in in, in athletics that often the longer it goes the better women are and we when you move to ultra marathoning that quite often the winner of the race is a female as opposed to a male and yet in cycling you still got that um oh they can't ride as many days of a of a a classic or they've got to ride shorter stages what what's your view on that yeah i think uh i i think it's a bit of an excuse sometimes from from race organizers just it's easier to manage a shorter race so yeah, they they limit us um, at 160 kilometers, and we can definitely ride further than that. I don't think we necessarily need to. I don't think it makes the racing more exciting, making us our races longer. There's there's often commentary from yeah people watching the sport that women's racing can be more exciting because it is shorter and um, where you know, we're not waiting until we're, you know, a certain distance from the finish line before lighting the race up because we've got, yeah, we've got less road to work with. So it's all out from the start to the finish. And yeah, I don't know, some people say that that men's racing gets a bit predictable when it's a really long stages and um, I think yeah, there's some good arguments either way, isn't there? And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Because when when I sort of rationalise the whole thing, when watching a men's race and look, and I'm an avid watcher, and you know, what sat through the whole tour uh, this year, because I think except for one night, uh, and then I'll, I'll watch a, a women's race. I don't see a lot of difference. I honestly do not see a lot of difference. The the team tactics are the same. The brakes are the same. The chasing, the use of the peloton is the same. I can't see why they don't think, or you know, I'm not saying I'm not generalising totally. Why why the the um, promoters and the TV channels can't think that this actually is a bloody good product to put out yeah. there for people to watch? Yeah, you know, I mean, I agree, but I but. Yeah, I think it comes down to the fact that the men's racing has such a long history and in comparison, yeah, the women's racing is still is still developing and like but it's now it's now really getting to the point where people are are taking more interest in it and and there should be more coverage because we're as you say like it's just as entertaining as the men's. So, I think a a lot more broadcasters uh, realizing that they're going to get people watching the race and that it yeah it's worth the investment would you be hopeful that we're not too far away from the um, tour de france having a a more realistic tour for the women than just the, the one day uh, opener la course yeah well they have said that there is plans for a women's tour de france in 2022 i believe so it's coming <laughs> 
Because yeah. to, to a lot of us as independent sort of observers, I just see it as that is a little bit tokenistic. You know, people might want to argue with me about it, but just to have a sort of a warm-up race for the women over one mm. day on the same course that men are doing, I, or the same morning, wasn't it, when they did stage one? I, you know, to me, it's just that slaps of tokenism, and I think you deserve a lot more than that. And what we're seeing too is the um, the characters. Uh, and I think this is going to be essential, isn't it, moving forward, Grace, that you need personalities, you need characters, you need rivalries as well. You know, these are the, the good things. And I think one of the great things we've got going in Australia, we have an Australian team, we've got Mitchell and Scott, we can get behind them. Uh, and we can start to understand those different characters and, and all the personalities that make up a team. And I, I think it's uh, it's a great, you know, great sport or great spectacle because of that too. Yeah, definitely. That's that's one of the things that a lot of people love about the men's cycling is the character profiles um, of a lot of the top guys, and and that's really one of the main jobs of the the journalists that are trying to promote uh, women's cycling is creating those those character profiles in women's cycling as well, so that fans can really have their favourites and. Um, get behind people and, yeah, it makes it more interesting, I think. You've probably seen this. Uh, it came from last year in the Tour of Flanders. There was a, um, a very famous Twitter post of a 23-year-old uh, Danish girl, I think, called Cecile Utrup Ludwig, and her description after she came, I think, second in the race, uh, it's just one of the most um, <laughs> very entertaining video. Did you see that one after you were probably in that race? Um, oh, no, I wasn't in that race last year, but, I, yeah, I do vaguely remember she's done she's done some quite um yeah quite good interviews at at a few races so very (laughs) animated um and it was just yeah I was just sitting there just chuckling away it is a really really nice piece to camera and and yet again I think you know we don't need women to be um dealing on sexuality and all those sort of things it's really just personality it's who you are and I think in sport it's about competition it's about competitive edge and I think with what we've got now with this unit called Grace Brown we have got a supreme competitor and um, I think uh, the future here and I think yeah we are I'm considering myself quite lucky to get in on the ground floor to get this interview relatively early in the rise because I think uh, you know you're certainly going to be adding your name to that list of Australian greats and there's plenty of them in cycling but uh, I think Grace Brown is going to be taking one of those positions relatively soon. Oh, well, thank you. I'm flattered uh, that you think that. Um, yeah, obviously I'm going to... Well, not the only one, Grace Brown, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, All sorry. right. Now, now let's build up your profile. How can people follow you on Insta in particular? My Insta handle is underscore G underscore Brown. That's a nice uh, easy one. Yeah. All right. And, and you, do, you are quite active on Insta, which is great, which is, is really good to see. Um, I think I've taken up enough of your day. You've already been out for a ride today, which is great. So I knew I'd get you when you're a little bit uh, tired and, and easy for me to manipulate, which is fantastic. So, <laughs> I didn't Grace, I really do appreciate. Yeah, it certainly was. Uh, I re- do appreciate you giving us uh, your time and looking on behalf of the the athletics community because you know people do still know your name, know who you are, know a lot of your story. I think. I'm so excited um, that we played a part in where you're going, what you've done, and I think the next chapter is just going to be amazing. It's, uh, it's really been good to catch up again after quite a few years. 
Thanks, Tim. I'm glad you uh, don't think that I've abandoned the athletics community because it's, yeah, it was definitely a big part of my journey and I still miss running a little bit. Um, I like to have a jog or two in my off season, but yeah, it breaks me, unfortunately. <laughs> well, yes, but uh, the sport is always here and uh, yeah, maybe we'll see you in Masters competitions in years to come. <laughs> you might just. <laughs> All right. Now, hopefully you will also be back in Melbourne before too long. You're just waiting to confirm flights and we'll have you back in uh, this place. And uh, look, uh, good luck for the, the next coming season and obviously for the future, Grace. It's been so nice to talk to you. Thanks a lot, Tim. It's been great to talk to you as well. So quite an all-encompassing interview there with Grace, Sean. It was uh, nice to just, uh, you know, I, I love the laid-back style too. She's she's not going to go out uh, telling everyone how great she is. Uh, that's sort of our role, I think. And, and look, I hope that over time that people like Grace Brown are going to become household names in, in Australia. But that's going to take uh, mainstream media probably giving her the credit that is due. Yeah, yeah, I think we've seen a, a big rise in, in the time allotted to those sports that have been able to press on, you know, in, in a lot of those European environment environments. And, um, you know, hopefully um, Grace's cycling is is something that can be picked up, you know, particularly heading into into what is, is hopefully an Olympic year. Yeah, and look, we, we sort of off air, we talked a bit about the World Champs, the Olympics, Com Games, where they all sit. And mm. in that team environment, then it, it can be hard to work into an Olympic cycle or to, a, you know, particularly Com Games because it's seen as such a, you know, a low-level competition for yeah. them. But they note full well that a Commonwealth Games gold medal might be what it takes to get publicity in australia you know the herald sun might then pick you up uh, yeah. otherwise you know she can win whatever she likes over in europe but the herald sun aren't going to touch her because she's not related to a footballer you know it's a sad sad situation isn't it yeah yeah and hopefully there is um you know more of an opportunity on the horizon for her to be able to show those talents off in in maybe a more uh more viewed um format um, yeah, yeah. And television coverage is going to help too, uh, mm-hmm. and that you know there were you know in in the final you know, that wrap up we did with Grace that you know where she starts to talk about the the fact that the Tour de France are, are honestly looking at more than just La Course, more than just a sort of a prelim to the men's. They're looking at potentially having a a more uh, robust Tour de France for the women. Yeah, but those sort of things I think will be the step forwards that we need, and then that that cohort of great Australian cyclists, both male and female, I think. Are going to hopefully propel that that sport higher into um, in, into the consciousness of, of Australians, similar to what we want to see with Jess Hull, Stewie McSwain and our cohort of great athletes. And that extends, you know, Kelsey Lee Barber, we've got some rippers out there, but yet again, uh, as what you'd call, you know, in some ways a minor sport, we just struggle to get the mainstream media. And as we full well know at Athletics Victoria, we virtually have to do our own promotion. Yeah, yeah, I think it comes back to the the maxim we work off pretty often that you know if, if you're not willing to promote your own sport, it, it's it's sometimes a little bit rich to expect mainstream providers to promote it. Um, and I guess you know, without trying to sound holier than thou, um, you know that's that's definitely a a broader long term goal of, of of formats like this in in having a podcast. You know, it starts off quite small. You know, it's 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 very specific in terms of the medium we cover, but you know, the more and more breadth we can get in terms of interviewing those guests who, you know, do have a link to athletics, someone like a Grace Brown, um, you know, I think the more appeal we can have to those individuals just getting involved in the sport or taking a fleeting interest in the sport and, and try and sort of 
you know, spread the things that we love the most about the sport. Yeah, and we also, you know, we don't shy away from the fact that athletics, we see ourselves as a foundation sport. And if we're the launching pad for an AFLW career or a cycling career, or in Kim Crow's case, you know, Olympic gold medals at rowing, then, you know, all credit to athletics for being that base. And and as Grace rightly said, some of the skill sets she picked up from athletics are serving her so well now in the world of professional cycling. Mm. So... It was, yes, a, a very nice conversation and good luck to her. And hopefully this now raises her profile amongst the athletic fraternity in Victoria and across Australia. Yeah. Now, in other things, Stuart McSwain was out again. Um, conditions not ideal for an attempt on the 5K record? Yeah, busy man. He um, had done some pacing in Valencia, um, not not specifically with Josh Cheptegei at the front. Uh, I think Matt Ramsden uh, did another really good pacing job there. Uh, but Stewie was pacing one of the packs a little bit further back to try and help out. Um, but he lined up in what was basically a sort of last-minute replacement um, event for the um, FBK games in Hengelo. So uh, usually a pretty big meet held in Hengelo, um, often distance-centric. Um, so organised by Global Sports Communication who manage a lot of the really big-name um Ugandan, Ethiopian or Kenyan athletes. So, you know, guys like Elliot Kipchoge and Kananisa Bakili and Joshua Cheptegei and um, let's send a bit uh, Gide, uh, I believe. Um, but, yeah, so he stepped out there and it, it was sort of seen as a bit of a match race because Yomef Kajelcha was going to race, um, who is the indoor world record holder for the mile and he's, you know, he's around 12.46 for 5,000 metres. Um, and it was a really good meet in the sense that, you know, you had Faith Kipyagon having a go at the world best for the 1K to start up with. So, you know, it, had, it had all the meet, the makings on paper as a, as a really great meet um, and obviously Sifan Hassan to tail end the meet um, in terms of having a crack at the 10,000 metre um, European or world record. It was sort of uh, mentioned a bit. Um, so they are in Hengelo, but the problem was um, the weather probably didn't cooperate as much as they'd hoped. So it started off raining relatively lightly for the for the 1,000 metres and, and Kipiagon ran well, but, you know, it was, it was a sort of, petered out a bit um, in the last 200, so it wasn't quite as fast as she was in Monaco earlier in the year in setting the sort of second fastest time in the event in Monaco. Uh, but they had the wave light pacing as well, which has been a really interesting addition to the sport. Um, so could you just go into the wave light, you know, because uh, it's fairly new to me and I'd, I'd love to hear your explanation of it and what it does. Yeah, so the someone really clever has looked at the World Athletics regulations about pacing um, and has you know, noted that you can't, as an athlete, you can't have a device that you you carry or is, is sort of uh, artificial to what you're doing um, on your sort of on your persons, and you know you hit limitations in that you can't have a pacer pace you for five laps and then jog a lap and get lapped and then pick up and help you again. Um, so there's there's this theory that you know they need to sort of run at your pace for as long as they can and then they step off and you're by yourself. So. You know, we saw it in Joshua Cheptegei's world record in the 10,000 metres that when Kenanisa Bikili, um set the previous world record, his variance in laps was sort of 61 to 64 seconds and, you know, actually ran a, a pretty big negative split in the last kilometre. So he came home like a freight train. Um, but with Cheptegei, he had this phenomenal knack where, you know, his lap times didn't differ by any greater than seven-tenths of a second. And a lot of people, you know, it was a little bit annoying in the media saying, oh, he's, he's got great pace judgment. And you're like, yeah, because this wave light concept is it's a it sits on the inside railing of the track, um, and there's basically a green light and a red light um, that exist in a sort of bandwidth, uh, a, a distance of of lighting up rail, um, and the athlete basically requests a pace prior to the race, 
And as long as they are in line with that green light, um, they are on pace. So um, it sort of creates, it sort of fixes this loophole in that your biggest problem with world record attempts is if you can get anyone that can pace you far enough, they often want to be in the race. You know, they, they don't want to miss an opportunity to run really fast. And even if they are in the race, they might only be able to run, you know, 50 to 60 to 70% of the race distance. But you find this this um, opportunity now for someone like a chapter guy where, you know, it's, it's almost like he's got a little reminder on the inside of the track. So he doesn't need to have, you know, a, he doesn't need to have a coach standing on the side of the track yelling splits at him. He doesn't need to get to 200 or 400 meters each time and listen for a time or hope he's still on the right split. He basically has a Christmas tray on the inside of him <laughs> um, that he just needs to stay in line with. So it'll be really interesting to see. Um, you know, we'd, we'd seen some use of it earlier in the season um, in trying to achieve some more even pacing in some 1500s and some 3Ks and so on. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see how that uh, sort of eventuates um, in the sport. But it does fit in this loophole that, you know, it's not seen as a device that you're carrying or you're artificially using as an advantage on your persons and it's not a human pacer dropping back to get lapped so it sort of seems to fit in between these two rules that world athletics did have on pacing so quite a clever uh, dutch invention i believe so good on them well believe it or not we were talking about this for zatapec well many 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 years ago but it was more along the line of having you know as they come around each lap to have a laser go across to indicate where Australian record um, performance would be. But well, anyway, they've obviously advanced that concept. Now, the only difference I'd say to having a physical pacemaker was is the wind resistance because, you know, for these guys, that, that means that they're out in front and if there are climatic conditions that aren't ideal, then they are having to, to lose that extra percent, you know, whatever percentage in that yeah. they are forced yeah. through the air rather than having someone in front of them. Yeah, so so I think it it maybe sits in that that realm of acceptability for a lot of people, um, whether it's a you know a moral or a, or a sporting concern. In that, it it's it just fixes you know what is one of the hardest bits of longer distance world records. In that, you know you you're probably in a in a pretty substantial amount of pain. Um, you know you you're trying to run a personal best at the top level, you know the fastest anyone's ever run a distance. Um, and if you can have a reminder of sorts. Or, or even something that can settle you a little bit in terms of not going too fast. Um, you know, it, it takes a lot of the mental stress out of it. Yeah, certainly. So, you know, well, do you want to talk a little bit about Stewie, how he went and what happened and how that panned out? Yeah, so unfortunately, as, as the guys came out for the 5,000, um, Stewie had Sean Tobin and, and Matt Ramsden uh, lined up to pace and um, it started raining quite heavily. Um, it was about nine degrees, so it, it looked really grim on the track and you know there were some sort of puddles forming and you could see people out with brooms so like each lap as the guys went past people would scurry out onto the track and try to sweep the, the puddles which was um quite inventive but they it it wasn't explained super well by the commentators but as i understand it Yomif Kajelcha had actually asked for at or near world record pace which seemed really odd given he'd only raced twice this season at 1500 and had sort of had one good result at 1,500 and one middling result. So there was nothing to suggest in his season, you know, as a 1,246 guy that he was all of a sudden going to run 12,35 or 12,34. And I know people would make the comparison that Cheptegei ran a sizable PB to run 12,35, but, you know, he seemed to have pretty sizable lead-in as to why he thought he was going to do it and it was very calculated. So 
Um, they set off at sort of 231 to 233 pace for the first 2K and, and Stewie kind of seemed to drop back at 2K because it was, you know, super hot pace. Um, but the weirdest thing was Kajelcha basically went around the pacemakers after about three and a half minutes. Um, and, and it was almost like, uh, you know, Sean Tobin had done his bit, but, it, you know, he didn't even really get a chance to step off. So when Kajelcha went around and, and kind of just said, you know, it's not for me, like I'm going to run 60.5 instead of, say, 60.8, um, you know, Ramson stepped off as well because it was kind of like, oh, well, you know, what are we doing then if if this isn't quick enough? Because they, they were in line with the light as well. So it was, it was really odd to watch because it wasn't as if Tobin or Ramson were going too slow. They, they were right in line with, you know, what was requested. Um, and, yeah, Kajelcha kind of set off on his merry way and um, – yeah, it, it didn't, I guess it, it sort of sputtered out after about 3K. You know, Kajelcha was through in about 741 and, and McSwain was through in about 748. Um, so uh, it puts Stewie in a really tough spot because he ended up having to run probably the better part of 3K um, entirely by himself, uh, which is, you know, frustrating at the best of times, particularly in that in that weather. Um, and he ended up he ended up second, but he ended up, I think he made up a bit of time towards the end on, on Kajelcha. You know, Kajelcha sort of blew out through running 66s and 67s at the end. Um, so Kajelcha got the win in 13, 12, 84, um, and Shui ran 13, 16, 05. Um, so uh, another another solid performance under, under 13, yeah, 20. Yeah, he's just he's solid at the moment. He, it's, he's, he's not putting a foot wrong, really. And, yeah, I think, um, it's, I think it's the fifth time in his career he's been under 13, um, under 1320 and something like the oh sorry I think it's the fifth fastest time he's run and the ninth time he's been under 1321 so he's really you know even on what seemed like a bit of a bad day um, he's still able to run under 1320 which is is really encouraging so I assume Stu will be on the way back to Australia um, I'm not sure I saw on social media this morning he's in Amsterdam having a bit of a holiday with Brett Robinson um, which you know all for that have have a bit of fun while you're waiting oh, okay. for your flight to get okay to come back so. I think the trouble at the moment is is getting back. Um, the only people I've really seen get back have opted for the business class flight, um, which gets you in that sort of quota that can come back each day, but usually comes at that you know sort of five to eight thousand dollar price mark. So yeah. I guess it's how much <laughs> you want to come back, and you know if it's the end of your season, I guess there's not a particular rush to come back. So we'll see what happens with those guys and girls. Yeah, well, he'd be happy with his European campaign though. Have to be. Yeah, yeah. As a season, absolutely ridiculous. The, you know, the the slowest per se he ran was three thirty four, um, three thirty four twenty five um, for fifteen hundred in Ostrava, um, and still finished third. So you know, it was it was a bit more of a tactical race. Um, but you know, you look at his season; it's basically three thirty one, three thirty four, three thirty two, three thirty in a national record, seven twenty eight in an area record. Um, 1313, 1309, 1316, um, and some pacing. So, yeah, uh, it's good. We've really concentrated on endurance and distance, but has there been much in the sprints? Have any Australian uh, specialists like, you know, the throwers, jumpers, have they been over or we've only really just had our, um, you know, grouping of of distance runners over in Europe? Yeah, from what I've seen, um, I do apologise if I um, miss anyone, but, uh, we, we obviously we had Nicola McDermott was over there um, high jump wise, um, but that's haven't to, seen a result for a little while. Yeah, I, I think things might might have you know this might have called it a season there, but I you know I don't think we had any jumpers that went over outside of McDermott. Um, 
Otherwise, it just seemed to be the distance runners that were quite keen to get over. Um, and we didn't, didn't really have any sprinters. Like I, I know, you know, he's almost a sprinter sometimes. Um, Josh Ralph was over there doing some pacing. So good to see him getting back from what was a pretty serious injury last year, I believe. So, um, yeah, I think it was really mainly just, you know, Peter Bowl, Joseph Stang uh, at, at, at 800. Um, and then just the larger MCC group um, racing everywhere from sort of 1500 to to yeah, five and ten thousand meters uh, on the marathon, yeah. So yep. no, I think we were pretty light on for um, other yep. options, yeah, as expected. Now, uh, European record was um, taken over last few days. You want to talk about that one? Yeah. So even with the bad weather, um, Laura Waitman uh, from Great Britain was pacing um, Safan Hassan, um, who uh, ended up running a pretty astonishing um, ten thousand meter. Time she ran 29.36.67, which is a European record. Um, so breaks Paula Radcliffe's European record um, and is also the fourth Quite fastest. Substantially. Yeah, and is the fourth fastest 10,000-meter time in history, which is, look, staying up at about 3 a.m. to watch it, it definitely didn't look like it was on the cards. Um, you know, you, you kind of imagined it in your head that, you know, Hassan had given this pretty stern effort to stay on what was world record pace and you thought oh, okay once once she falls off this she's really gonna and really gonna um really gonna explode but nope i think she was on world record pace for about six and a half k um and then sure she fell off it but you know, she didn't fall off it that much so um all of this whilst there was literally driving rain um and she was like she was shivering on the start line and you know, the pacemaker was trying to cheer her up a bit and crack a few jokes so uh, yeah it was a pretty crazy performance yeah. Now, the one of the you know compelling things happening over this season though is is spike ne- technology, and there's mm-hmm. been you know some really good uh, podcasting, especially about the influence the shoes may be having uh, on times. Do you want to just yeah, sort of venture into the, that little world a little bit, Sean? Because we know you love this topic. Yeah, and, and I you know I'm trying to keep this as as apolitical and and brief as possible. But I, I think the more interesting thing we've seen outside of you know reactionary arguments in terms of our oh, the sports doomed or the sports not doomed, you know this this best or worst you know take that there's there's no real nuance in that. It's very easy to just pick a good or a bad side. Um, but there have been a couple of people who have I guess taken a bit more of a, a scientific or historical view on it to try and provide some perspective. Um, and, you know, Ross Tucker is a guy who has a lot of involvement, um, I guess, at a scientific policy end um, with a lot of major organisations, whether it be, you know, rugby, cycling, athletics. You know, he's, he's been involved across a, a breadth of sports, um, a South African sports scientist. And he has a really good podcast um, that he hosts with another South African scientist. Um, I think it's called The Science of Sport. Um, yeah, and actually, they, he's not a scientist. He's more of a magazine editor, and that's where they get this lovely balance on on the complete science. Oh, sorry, oh, right, yeah, you're all right. Uh, the science of sport, yeah, yeah, the real science of sport, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, the other guy is actually the editor of uh, Runners World South Africa and also a cycling well, uh, magazine. So he gives that lovely sort of bring it back to layman terms uh, yeah. dynamic to that podcast, and it is a podcast that, particularly on this subject, pe- people should tune in to, to the real science of sport. But also, there's many other podcasts they've put out that are very relevant uh, to particularly more on the endurance side of things marathons and uh, you know track you know, middle distance long distance track yeah and and tucker also has a website as well so if you if you you know are more into digesting that sort of content through reading it and looking at sort of graphs and examples um you know that's that's really yeah there's that option as well 
Um, and, and I guess the point that obviously his podcast title is a bit, you know, clickbaity to try and get people in. Yeah, he his take was more on the the vape uh, the the vapor fly and the next percent and sort of the four percent shoe evolution, um, and, and they do focus a lot on that as there's not a lot of information available yet about the the spikes that are coming out. Um, but you know he, he makes a couple of points that I'll, I'll cover briefly. Um, you know people have asked him on Twitter, you know, is is there any evidence to say that the track spikes have as great a advantage or, or performance assistance as the shoes? And he basically said, look, there's no evidence yet for the track spikes. Um, and this was back in late 2019. So this was, this was a very early take um, because we haven't really seen that one of the biggest difficulties has been laboratories actually getting um, access to a, a real number of these spikes and, and a number of runners who are then able to test. And obviously COVID's gotten in the way of that as well. Um, but, you know, he raises that, hypo- that hypothetical question. If, if you're even getting an effect somewhere in the range of 1%, um, then in, you know, in a 1500, that's, that's two to three seconds. Um, so, you know, that's, that's absolutely enormous, but he goes on to sort of have this, this broader discussion on his podcast and he, and he brings in a guy called Jeff Burns, um, who's really fascinating and is, is a PhD candidate, um, at the university of Michigan, um, and also a pretty established ultra runner himself. Um, and, and he has this, this proposition where he talks about, you know, that calling them carbon fiber plated shoes or spikes is actually um it's not helpful you know it, it, it's uh that he humorously says there are some more accurate alternatives you know in terms of saying they're super shoes or next generation footwear or, or they're augmented um you know in, in narrowing that down and i'm sort of paraphrasing off his twitter here um, which is at jeffrey burns if anyone wants to go check it out um is that referring to that new footwear as, as merely carbon fiber plated is kind of misleading to to customers um in that it's sort of in a in a appropriately attributes the benefit of just a plate, um, which is also kind of inaccurate. So the spikes that you're seeing, Chep the Guy or Hassan or Stewie, even even wear, um, the dragonfly spike, which looks a bit like an old Matumbo for those that are familiar. Um, it doesn't have a little airbags at the front that the more 1500 spike has, um, is that it's a, it's it's not a carbon fiber plate in it to be specific. Um, because you you start to get this suggestion that any new shoe that has carbon fiber is beneficial, which it's it isn't necessarily. And it's not a very new concept. You know, Adidas are a, a brand that have had um, you know, whole sheets of carbon fiber in some of their sprint spikes for, for many, many, many years because it's incredibly rigid um, and is very good, pardon me, very good under high temperatures. Um, so Burns references this study by uh, Laura Healy, who's a, a sort of well-respected uh, biomechanist um, out of the US, and this guy, Wuda uh, Hukugama, who is... Um, works in uh, the University of Massachusetts at their Integrative Locomotion Lab um, and studies energetics and neuromechanics of walking and running. So these are some people who are not looking at it specifically from a track and field perspective, but are really involved in the science of how this all works. So they sort of they had this really fascinating study where they actually made cuts across the plate in the vapor fly to see if it would reduce the effect of the plate um, or the shoe. And, and they were able to do this in a way that um, cut the shoe but didn't cut the base of the shoe itself so the the sole stayed intact um they said they didn't observe any net changes in the power absorption or generation at the foot shoe or ankle complexes in the cut plates versus the intact plates which supported the idea that the primary function um, of the plate itself is that it's an architectural supporting piece within that greater shoe matrix so to sort of reiterate that the benefit of these super shoes and spikes comes from the interaction 
of their components. And I think that's a really important part for people to take away. It's not just a plate or just the foam. Um, it's that in that interaction, you know, the the shoe itself becomes, um, you know, it's substantially more resilient and has more compliant foam and all the air units that are being used. Um, and that benefit is, their benefit is being facilitated by these rigid pieces that sit within it. So you have better materials that enable uh, newer sort of architecture within a shoe. And we spoke about this earlier, Tim, that, you know, the, the spikes you might have used 10 years ago would literally have a plate of maybe three mil or four mil on the bottom, you know, it'd be tiny. And now you're up to sort of 25 mil um, bases of a spike. So if you're an industrial designer or a footwear engineer, that's a that's a ton of space to play with. Um, well, yeah, as you, the analogy you use, it's like you've got a two-story house now to play with rather than a, a single-story yeah. uh, dwelling. <laughs> yeah, you've got scaffolding. Um, so, yeah. you know, our feet are composed of these rigid bones and compliant tissue and elastic tendons and ligaments. So they're not they're not these sort of boned leg appendages that some people try and make out. You know, they're, they're feet. And all those ingredients sort of work together in this really dynamic, complex way to make sure that we've got something better than just stiff bones or, or globs of fat at the end of our shins. Um, and Burns goes on to comment on the dragonfly spike itself. And this, this was in August, so this was quite recent. And he said, you know, it's a, it's a hefty chunk of PBAX foam and, and PBAX are a proprietary manufacturer that a lot of companies use um, with what they call a rigid PBAX plate. So compared to conventional spikes, that foam is a lot softer um, with more energy return uh, or as, you know, you would use a less um, catch cry phase um, yeah you have more energetic saving um, and the really key thing you do is you also preserve the low weight of the shoe so the plate enables stability and faster ground contact times on what is squishy foam um, and it's a really similar story to the vaporfly so you know you have a pbax plate there that's um, we have a pbax plate in the spikes that's likely a bit less stiff than carbon fiber um, yeah, it might be more optimal in a spike given it's it's so slim compared to the road shoe. Uh, but PBAX was used as a rigid material for sprint spikes and ski boots and all those sorts of things long before this, this foam came in for the same reasons in that both the foam and the PBAX plating or carbon fiber plating, um, they're light, they're resilient, and they're really robust to temperature. Um, so that sort of flows into a, a broader piece that Tucker has. And you know he's a guy that's often referred to for sort of expert commentary on very broad, tricky um, subjects. Um, and he sort of tries to bring it back to, you know, this open principle that sport has value because the results have a meaning that we create and accept using sometimes arbitrary lines or classifications. And, you know, you or I, Tim, are used to that at AV. You know, it's, it's sort of the same reason we have age classifications in some sports. You know, there's no meaning in sports results when a 25-year-old beats a 16-year-old in a lot of sports. You know, there are some exceptions, but... You know, you also have things like weight classifications in combat sports. Um, you know, if you're a 60 kilo fighter, you know, you're not going to fight someone who's 90 kilos. And you say, why? Because, you know, if, if someone's 60 kilos, and the other person's 60 kilos, the result retains a sort of meaning or, or a perceived integrity. So for this sort of perceived integrity of the sport, you know, you have these lines that get drawn. Um, and, it, and it sort of is this philosophical take of, you know, sports results must have meaning. And he questions how that relates to equipment. You know, he says in boxing, glove weights are regulated depending on the fighter weight. Um, in tennis, balls and racket sizes um, and the hitting area are regulated. You know, hockey, you have length and width limits. Um, even in high jump, you know, the thickness of the sole has been regulated there for a long time. Um, historically, there was a Russian jumper who started using um, a shoe that had a thickness of 40 millimeters. 
and it was quoted as being so effective that it allowed him to emerge from mediocrity like a um, chorus girl hopping out of a paper cake, um, which is a direct quote from Sean Ingle, who's a, who's a good writer in the UK. Um, basically, in, in response back in time, um, you know, um, the authorities brought in a limit and high jump results were, were sort of thus determined by something other than a shoe. And, you know, we sort of roll around to this beast that no one ever really wants to touch, which is swimming, you know, saying who can forget, you know, what happened in 2008, um, in 2009, when this sort of absence of regulations led to a bit of a clearance sale on world records, as Tucker puts it, um, and this sort of clean sweep of Olympic medals for for a company. Um, and I think the really interesting thing is Tucker is not critical of a particular brand. Like, if anything, he's a scientist at, at his core, so he's quite excited by a lot of this technology. I think he looks at it in more of a philosophical sporting sense, um, you know, saying that in all these instances, the regulation imposes limits that are meant to ensure that the results have a desired meaning. And he has this analogy that he says, you know, in many sports, he doesn't want a five-set final at the Australian Open, thinking, shit, I wonder if this result would have been different if TM or and Djokovic could swap tennis rackets. You know, if only my guy had a different sponsor. Yeah, neither does nor does he want to watch swimming, wondering whether the guy in lane four actually might be a better swimmer than the guy in lane five, but with a swimsuit that's 3% worse. So the point that he returns to is that the difference made by technology is larger than what scientists feel is the normal difference between athletes. And that means that possibly the integrity of that result begins to change. Um, and if this technology is unevenly distributed um, with differences in access, then it becomes unfair. Um, and I think that's almost what we've seen in, the, in that new world athletics rule about the availability of that footwear at major championships, particularly if you're not sponsored. Um, and I won't, I won't, you know, I won't drag this out too much longer. But I think the the point that we miss really regularly is that when this first batch of lab tests on the Vaporfly came out, one of the most striking observations were that the average effect was three to four percent less oxygen was used at the same speed which translated into an estimated 2% to 2.5% of performance benefit for elite marathon runners. Um, and that was where this initial wave of controversy came from. Um, but it, it was more important that um, these early studies, there's, there's one that since has come out and shown one basically negative responder, but there was this period of time where nobody could find someone having a negative response to this these new super shoes. Um and, you know, the range of respondents was really striking. So, you know, this first paper had a spread between 2% and 6% with an average of 4%. And, and this was, you know, innately, this is where Nike got their marketing idea from. You know, initially they had a 2% um, sort of improvement they were finding in semi-elites. And they said, oh, we didn't think 2% would sell particularly well. So we called it the 4%, you know, it sounded better. <laughs> Um, yep. but then even well, it's, it's here to stay, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and even in the second study, it was similar. You know, though they, they found there were one or two people that had a 0% improvement, there were still people that had, you know, up to a 6% improvement in, in their running economy. Um, and the crazy thing was there was this consistent theme in all of the sort of three major studies that have come out was that rear, rear foot strikers got a larger benefit than forefoot strikers um, and showed that those with shorter ground contact times got a larger po- positive benefit, which which wasn't really um, all that surprising. But, you know, the, the performance implications of a lot of this footwear shouldn't be ignored. And, and I don't think, you know, I don't think it should be an argument that's phrased as an attack on the athletes because if you're an athlete, you're not going to not use it, you know, as far back as, um, you know, any sort of technological innovation you've got in sport, you know, you want to be able to line up at the, the sort of biggest comp in the world and 
and have that same opportunity. So if you as an athlete think there's a genuine performance benefit to be had, which I think we've established there is, um, you know, you, you start to wonder what the effect of this this range of responses across across equipment is. Um, and, you know, in, in something as, as far extrapolated as the marathon, um, you know, that's a difference of up to, you know, one minute to three minutes sort of difference. Um, so yeah, and I, then that's now playing through in the records we're seeing and, and the performance spike, say, pre-2018 to, um, to what we're seeing now, isn't it, between the same athlete? Yeah, and, and I think that that's the point we've sort of, you know, hit the nail on the head is that even world athletics have gone as far as to sort of outrule um, prototypes because that was sort of what they were, they were most worried about, you know, new technology coming out that, you know, only one athlete or five athletes, you know, had access to. And we, we saw this as early as, um, as early as 2016 when sort of the top three athletes at the Rio men's marathon um, were all in what we found out later to be, um, you know, new, new technological shoes, like basically shoes that other people didn't have access to. Um, so I, I think, what and, you, and that's where the lines blur, isn't it, Sean? Because the, yeah, so you, so we lose. Definitely got an advantage there that uh, is beyond the human uh, training advantages. Yeah, so we lose this ability to say, you know, if I lined up Kenanisa Bakili from 2006 and Joshua Chapter Guy from 2020, I'm not sure how it would go. Um, and and it's not as simplistic an argument as saying, oh, that's just because of their shoes. But I think it's time we accept that that plays a part. You know that that's an unavoidable part of the discussion, and and probably the the more domestic concept is if you have two athletes finish you know neck and neck in a in a ten k road race, and you know one athlete wins by a tenth of a second, um, you know sure you're going to attribute some of that to training and you know various physiological aspects, um, but you know what impact does does footwear have on that? And even in the case if that's not you know, one athlete in a pair of super shoes and, and one's not, it's more that they might both be in that same pair of super shoes and have trained similarly, but one person may respond better to that shoe. Um, and, and I think that's a really interesting concept, you know, sort of philosophically in the sport moving forward. So, yes, we recommend people do listen in to The Real Science of Sport because it is a good podcast. And, and Sean, once again, I'm um, enamoured with the way that you've combined your university degree and your love of athletics <laughs> into a very uh, very succinct and uh, and yet again, you know, hopefully for our listeners, you are putting this more into layman's terms, which I think is important because we can get buried in science and then start to lose focus of what it's all about. But it is nice to know it and relate it back to, to how it really impacts real world on what's happening in the world of athletics at the moment because it's definitely a, uh, a player, it's a factor in our sport now and, and it will be for, you know, all from here on, there's no doubt, is there? Yeah, definitely. I think we've seen that now that um, especially on the road front and gradually on the track front, um, pretty much every other brand or any any brand that, that plays in that top running world um, has a has an equivalent shoe. Uh, so it's, it's uh, I think, as one of the uh, sort of major shoe brand uh, uh, global marketing heads said on Twitter, you know, it's, it sort of has become a bit of a, a global arms race in shoes, um, but it's one you can't afford to not be involved in. All right. Well, we'll wrap episode 48 on those sentiments, Sean. Thanks again. Uh, we're looking forward to 49. It's a bit of a special show. I won't say too much about it, but we have some very, well, one 
you know, in particular, a very special guest on the next one, uh, something to look forward to. And and we've got content lined up till the end of the year, which is good. So we've, we're doing some really good forward planning now on the podcast and hopefully we'll keep providing uh, areas of interest for people to listen into in the athletics world. So, Sean Whip, thank you so much. Thanks, Tim.